Kia ora koutou. Tonight we'll be concentrating on the management of adult diabetes predominantly, in particular acute problems, but also with some focus on long-term management of diabetes. Thank you to everyone for your ongoing attendance at our webinars and your support and the positive feedback we receive. We do take your feedback on board. The last two webinars, um, people have suggested we need to have even more of a rural focus and exports, experts sorry, who thoroughly understand the context we work in. Tonight, our two experts fully fulfill that criteria. We're very fortunate to be joined by clinical nurse specialist, Sharon Sanderlins and Dr. Alex McLeod. Sharon works down in central Otago, um, based at Dunstan Hospital, and does a magnificent job of caring for diabetic patients right, right the way through central Otago, Queenstown, Wanaka, Alex, and the surrounding districts. She has an excellent relationship with her patients and is a much valued resource pe person for local doctors and nurses alike. And I'm sure Gary would um, back me up on that. I see you there, Gary. Alex is a rural specialist and GP who I'm very lucky to work with at Taupo Hospital. Alex has a special interest in diabetes and a depth of knowledge. Alex has given me permission to share that he is in fact a type um, one diabetic himself and he was diagnosed at the age of 30. His clinical knowledge is backed up by real world experience that, that gives his teaching extra credibility. And in fact, it was a teaching session at Topol Hospital that inspired me to, to um, do a topic of, of diabetes with this webinar and invite Alex along tonight. So just before we get underway, um, I'll explain a little bit about tonight. The structure of the webinar is going to be slightly different um, for those who have come um, to our webinars before. Alex is going to present two of his own cases and we'll have a bit of a um, discussion about diagnostic and management dilemmas. We're also going to run a few brief polls for all participants um, to take part in. And don't worry, these will be completely anonymous, so no one will be able to pin your answer to you. Um, it's just really to get, gauge an idea of people's um, thoughts about different aspects of management, and Alex will reflect back on those. We will then move on to discuss um, some aspects of acute management with, with Sharon and um, Alex using a few brief case vignettes. And finally, Alex will um, briefly discuss some of the, the newer agents used in the, um, in the management of, of type 2 diabetes, recognising we, we don't need to have an in-depth knowledge of these, but, but an awareness, um, and certainly there are new, some new ones coming on the scene. So please feel free to keep, um, keep your questions and comments coming, typing them into the chat box, and Gary will keep an, an eye on these. Um, we'll aim for the webinar to be about 60 minutes, but we may spill over in time. Please feel free to, to move on after an hour if, um, and carry on with your evening if you need to, remembering these, that the, these are recorded and available to view and listen to later. Um, finally, if you just keep yourselves um, muted throughout, that just improves our sound quality. And there's a survey to complete. Um, the link for this is in the chat box. And this is a way of you providing your medical council number so that I can register this register for your CME points. Um, and it, it gives an opportunity for you to provide um, uh, feedback. Thanks, Matilda. Tēnā koutou katoa. Um, th thanks very much for the opportunity, everyone, to talk tonight about this. Um, I'm hoping this will be useful uh, for, for everybody and, and obviously I'm aware of being a little bit biased towards the topic myself with my personal experience as, as Matilda has outlined but um, we, you know we, we hope this will be fairly objective and by bringing in some real life cases from our own practice that it will be sort of um, applicable to the environments that we work in. Um, acknowledging though that all rural hospital settings are a bit different um, and so I guess everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, 
before I start on just presenting some cases, I just want to acknowledge also that um, you know, obviously we, we are doing a bit of a snapshot of a very large topic today and, and diabetes is very much a long-term condition. Um, uh, and, and therefore, you know, all of us need to be mindful of the thrust that that should uh, carry with it when we're seeing patients who are diabetic in our hospitals. But we're, we're trying here to focus on some matters with, with respect to acute problem troubleshooting, I guess. So um, hopefully this is helpful and uh, um, we, we certainly don't want to be telling you how to suck eggs, so to speak. So let me tell you about this case just to introduce things. So a 63-year-old Pākehā man uh, that came to our Taupo Hospital ED on a Thursday evening. Um, so he, he came to our attention because he'd had some blood tests taken in primary care um, for rather vague symptoms of malaise and weight loss and had a random glucose identified of 44. So with the benefit of the hindsight of knowing the lab result, he came to the ED and this kind of clinical presentation was brought forward to us of relatively typical diabetes symptoms indicating quite marked um, hyperglycemia constantly. And uh, as you can see, examination, vital signs, fairly unremarkable and a capillary blood glucose of 30 and non-ketotic. So he had some blood tests taken, they were all normal. Um, including his blood gases and acid, uh, rather acid-base balance. So really it came down to what, what should we do with a chap like this in a rural hospital ED in the evening, so after hours? Um, what's the diagnosis first up? Well, does it matter? Um, not necessarily at that point in time. And what is our overall strategy and acuity that we're going to employ here? So. We have the options in Taupo of utilising a rural hospital medicine clinic that we run on a Friday and that um, has ability to link in some clinical nurse specialist support or, or other options are to admit this chap either to us in the rural hospital or, or transfer him to our base hospital in Rotorua. Um, so tonight, I guess the question was, does he get immediately transferred and a, and a road ambulance pulled off to, to do that job for us up to the base hospital? Does he, does he stay in our rural hospital in our, in our ED or go to our ward? You know, how, how appropriate is that for something that's a relatively rare situation to deal with? Does he, does he just go home? Does he need anything done, any particular treatments at this point in time? So this brings us to our first poll, please, Matilda. So the, the questions there, I'm sure everyone can read them. So first of all, just would you think this was type one or type two diabetes? And then um, everyone's just deciding on whether or not it would be an admission to your rural hospital. So think about your context, a transfer to the, to the hospital that you would refer to or a discharge home with a management plan um, as an outpatient. Maybe Alex, I just one more bit of clinical information. You said that he'd lost eight kilograms. Roughly, what kind of weight was this chap? A big guy, little guy? Yeah, he he was lean. Lean. Okay. And interesting to see um, the group favouring a diagnosis of type two diabetes here. Um, so so this 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 man had type one diabetes, um, and and this is quite a typical presentation and serves to. Um, demonstrate to us that type 1 diabetes can 
the onset of that can occur at any age. Um, there's actually a, um, a, a second peak of incidence that occurs in, in older adults. Um, part two of the question, do we, where do we admit him to or, or transfer him to? So all quite reasonable options. And I, I guess it just depends on clinician um, sort of experience and, and uh, confidence really. He, the, this bloke was, was managed by me and I sent him home for the evening and brought him back the next day to transfer him to the base hospital for essentially initiation of insulin and, um, and setting him up on, a, on more of a longer term plan. So, I, I mean, I know, and I'd say our group, when we did, when Alex did this presentation to our group, we all certainly thought this was a type two diabetic and was one of the key learning points for us, certainly um, biased by his age. Yeah, so just talking about diabetes in rural hospitals, um, uh, it's almost never a primary problem that leads to people being hospitalised. Um, it's fairly rare, but it frequently is a contributor or etiological factor in diseases that we see. Um, I guess, you know, when we delve into the increasing incidence, particularly of type 2 diabetes, is a lot to say for you know, the typical um, milieu of genetics and uh, environmental factors in terms of our increasing sedentary nature, our food systems that, you know, are heavily weighted towards quite processed foods, etc., cetera, um, and our health system that is not necessarily all that well set up to cope with people with a condition such as this. Um, and I put there a bit of food for thought really about whether or not rural hospitals ultimately are suitable environments to manage diabetic emergencies such as DK and HHS, you know, which require quite a lot of intensive monitoring and intervention. Um, and for something that's not common to come through a rural hospital, arguably, uh, you know, is not necessarily the safest place in which to undertake that exercise. It, again, depends from one location to the next on how it goes and and i've just thrown in there that caring for children with these kind of problems is even more nuanced and i wonder if sharon just wants to jump in there and, and offer any thoughts on on that particular aspect of things so i i guess usually the children would have type one if they were unwell admitted to rural hospitals so they'd like to be on an insulin pump and of course we'd be ketone testing and that sort of thing but certainly with pediatric support from base hospital that's what you would you'd be looking for at your hospital Alex yeah absolutely so I guess the the point I want to make here is that um, a, a lot of the children out there are on pumps and continuous monitors and um, you know have a, have a very close working relationship usually with their diabetic nurse specialists and the specialist centers that they have uh, come come to be you know treated by and um, a lot of the problems they encounter will be able to be identified and managed in their own homes let alone any needing any contact with the rural hospital environment so um, just uh, make, make sure you clearly delve into where things are at as far as the sort of um, main treating team with with children especially um, who, who are often you know heavily involved in, in a particular system already. So I'll move on to another case we've got. So again, another real life case from Topor. Um, came through the middle of the night. So I, I saw this chap, a young middle-aged Maori man. 
vague presentation of dyspnea, bit of a cough, no fever, just uh, maybe a week or two before we hit COVID level four. Um, so we were starting to be wary of people with acute respiratory illnesses and, and the implications that that might have on our overall management of them. He's got an interesting background, this guy, quite a lot of pathology for a man of 39. Um, the main ones I've emphasized there, chronic heart failure um, and atrial fibrillation. What might be said as poorly controlled diabetes based on his high A1C. Um, a usual package of meds, including three different oral anti-diabetic medications. And he was meant to be taking Sotolol, but not. Um, hadn't been taking rather for one to two months uh, from some misunderstanding from a consult with a specialist. He didn't appear particularly unwell. Um, there's nothing really to find on examination, um, except for notable vital signs with quite a marked tachycardia and atrial fibrillation. Um, mildly tachypnea, but in no means distressed and oxygenating seemingly well. What would the group think we need to do with a chap like this at this point in time? What, what might be the first investigation we would go to? Let's have a poll on that. Great, so I think that's a good response. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I, I think everyone's on the money there, really. Um, that uh, important thing is to uh, is to look at the, this chap's acid-base balance now and um, and uh, what, what his glucose levels are doing. So. I, I was the doctor looking after this man at three o'clock in the morning in Taupo. And um, I guess I, I hope that I can uh, have the group here learn from my mistakes. And as is the classical trap with atrial fibrillation, I proceeded just to get on and manage the rapid AF because I thought that was the primary issue. And so we gave him some oral, then IV metoprolol, and then some IV diltiazem because nothing much was happening. We made his dyspnea and cough a little worse, but he still wasn't wheezy. So thinking that maybe we'd just embarrassed his pulmonary um, vasculature, we gave him some diuretic there. And after two to three hours, things were looking a little better. His heart rate had come down eventually to 110, 120, and figured it was reasonable to get him home and check his blood tests at eight o'clock in the morning when they were processed by the lab and see what we found. But of course, as everyone else in the group would have done, um, we should have checked his bloods and his blood gas because he came back to the hospital at about 8.30 in the morning and was still mentating fine, but his blood pressure was down a bit unsurprisingly. Um, and he had this metabolic picture on his blood gases and blood tests. So a real mixed bag of possible explanations for what was going on here. So we've got a metabolic acidosis that would appear to be somewhat chronic in, in view of a bicarb that's down a bit. Um, lactate also raised, which might, might be a sign of hypoperfusion somewhere. That could be his meds coupled with the heart failure background. It could be uh, the metformin that he's on. Um, maybe it's sepsis starting to develop in light of the white cell count that's raised. Um, so just he's got acute kidney injury for whatever reasons, but dehydrated. Um, 
also had some liver impairment evident by way of his raised bilirubin. Um, not ketotic, interestingly. So he doesn't really meet criteria for being in diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, you certainly could be in hyperosmotic hyperglycemic syndrome. And that's what we're going to move on to next. So ultimately, I, I part of us wondered whether this was just a weird presentation of COVID-19. <laughs> or was it really just a manifestation of his poorly controlled diabetes getting all out of hand for a variety of different coexisting pathologies. So I thought I'd just include this slide. I've, I've ripped it straight from up to date about diabetic ketoacidosis and HHS. They overlap a little, and that's really what I wanted to emphasize in this presentation, that we need to not get too hung up on trying to meet the exact criteria of one or the other. And oftentimes for these sorts of people with poorly controlled diabetes, it's going to be much more likely to be an HHE situation. It produces a much more profound metabolic derangement and dehydration picture, and it occurs much more gradually. So in, in light of that, we all need to focus on thinking about treating it and, and correcting the pathophysiology gradually and, and uh, you know, in terms of large volumes of fluid replacement over a gradual period of time. So I don't really want to go into the nuances of different protocols at different institutions. And um, I, my understanding of the evidence base is that uh, the best thing is just to learn your local protocol and, and be familiar with it and, and Play it out if these sorts of pa patients come along. Um, but so Ale yeah. Alex, oh. can I just check, double check with you? So HHS used to be called Honk. Am I correct in thinking that? Yes, precisely. Yep. And if we if we were to have a suspicion of that, which I guess is the important thing, is to have it on your on your radar and in your differentials. What would you say would be the single most useful test or calculation to do to Obviously, it's a cluster of things, but when it comes to differentiating it from DKA, what's it, what important tests should we add on or calculate that we might otherwise not think of doing? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Matilda. So um, the thing to emphasize about HHS is that people have much higher glucose levels. So um, looking up here at the glucose levels that you see in each of these conditions um, in, in our unit, so HHS typically will have very high glucose levels and people are profoundly dehydrated with it. They're not acidotic. Um, they've been in the situation for a little while and they've compensated by dropping their bicarbonate. Um, and they're not ketotic either is the other main thing to emphasize there. Um, you can obviously work out the serum osmolality, but I, but I think um, on the whole, it's not a particularly strong differentiator between DKA and HHS, um, even though it is part of the, the terminology that we use for, for defining the condition of hyperosmolar uh, syndrome. Um, so th th there are, at the bottom of the slide, as you can see, means of calculating um, a, um, a serum osmolality, should you wish to, and, and there's plenty of other means of accessing those sort of calculations around as well. And I, I think I re recall, and they're, they're quite high risk of um, of forming blood clots, aren't they? You need to be really careful with their um, yep. DVT prophylaxis. C correct. All, all of which is is almost always well in outlined a in, a, in a protocol, and, and I'd encourage everyone to just have a good look at that. 
So mo moving along, I, I wanted to just touch on one of the things about caring for diabetic patients in hospitals is really good monitoring. And one thing that Aussies do a lot better than us is um, that they have rolled out three years ago, this, or three to five years ago, I believe, um, this really neat chart that um, allows um, glucose levels to be plotted in and um, action to be taken at the bedside immediately when uh, blood sugars get out of range and that the insulin charting is all done on the same pro forma so that a, a sort of more holistic means of monitoring a diabetes situation can be achieved than, than we see in a lot of our um, systems we have in New Zealand. So um, I, I've been hoping to try and push this through for our hospital um, but of course it comes with challenges in terms of clinical governance um, requirements, et cetera. Um, but I'd, I'd encourage everyone to have a look at this just because it outlines really nicely what to do as um, means of tidying up glucose control for people where it's getting out of, out of range. And, and um, we'll come to the front side of this chart in a, in a moment as well. I thought I'd just, Ask Sharon also to speak to us about glucose monitors now um, because obviously diabetic control is inherent on seeing what the glucose levels are and, um, and treating accordingly. So I'm going to throw up a slide of a whole lot of different monitoring systems that now exist and, and are used in New Zealand and uh, ask if Sharon just wants to talk us through what, what she sees of these and, and uh, some of the little ins and outs. So most people, of course, still use the KSENS monitors, which are funded in New Zealand. And a lot of them have got Bluetooth functionality, which people really like the, to use the trend graphs on their phones, etc. And most people find that really useful and helpful. So that's all funded. And then as you can see there, um, we've got these continuous monitors. You're probably quite familiar with on the top right, there, if you can see my arrow. This one's called the Freestyle Libre Monitoring. Yeah, thanks. And um, so people put the sensor on the arm and it stays there for two weeks and people can just use a scanner or a phone app and it is monitoring, is taking blood sugars every five minutes. So it gives you a graph, a continuous graph of what's happening, which is really useful for the patient for their own learning as to how to manage their diabetes and also for us diabetes nurses to be able to instruct on insulin doses. And then down to the bottom left, we're starting to look at pumps and continuous monitors. So that's a Dexcom monitor on the bottom left. And this, this is, um, works in conjunction or on its own with a pump and the same scenario it's taking blood sugars every five minutes and gives the person a graph it also gives alarms when a blood sugar is trending low so that the person can realize as as they're approaching low that they need to do something about it and it now works with the tandem pump in that which is really good for children it will now suspend the insulin if the if the person is trending into a hypo. And that's what we call basal IQ, and this is now available here in New Zealand. And then we've got, oh, that transmitter lasts for three months and the sensor is worn in the skin for 10 days. So same system as with Libre monitoring, we can only use those sensors for about two weeks. 
and both of those are unfunded. So the Libre costs $100 for two weeks and the Dexcom system slightly more. So that has quite a big effect for a lot of people. So Sharon, would in, does anyone meet any kind of like special authority that they do get them funded or it's all personally funded? It's all personally funded. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of and parents that, with children get funding from different trusts for yep. continuous monitors. Yeah. Are there any systems um, that link in the glucose monitoring to the pump so that it will change the infusion rate of the insulin from the pump? Currently, we've just got the basal IQ, which will suspend the pump for suspend going only. into low. Sure. But by the end of the year, we're going to have what's called control IQ, which will also get the pump delivering more insulin yep. for. So then we've basically got a closed loop system. Yep, sure. Thanks, um, Sharon. I've seen a few questions come through, but I'm just going to ask one myself for Alex. Thanks for bravely disclosing your case, Alex. I like it that the the diabetic doctor even didn't think of um, checking the blood glucose and we're all fallible. So thanks for sharing that case. And then something that you mentioned, and I, I may have got it um, wrong in my head, but with the first case, I remember when you presented that to us, you, you mentioned um, something about the level of that chap's blood glucose that influenced your diagnosis of him. Yeah, sure, Matilda. So um, one, one thing to say is, the, let's just come back to that first case. So someone who's got a glucose of 44 um, and has had symptomatically a, a rapid change um, is highly likely to be type one. Um, just that that picture is, is suggesting to you of just a pronounced pancreatic failure to be able to get your glucose levels up into that kind of range um, and, and in just a short space of time like that. Uh, so the other sort of um, aspects to a, a phenotype, as I said to you earlier, he's he's a lean guy um, who's Pākehā as well. Um, and and he, he's, he's, he's not, not showing any other any other sort of features of metabolic syndrome, really. So um, those, those are probably the main things to emphasise there as to leading you down that pathway. Yeah, sure. Um, I think we'll just go over to Gary. Um, I've just spotted a few th questions coming up in the chat box. Gary, are you happy to um, feedback some of those questions to us? Um, I think probably Alex has done actually quite a good job of covering some of them anyway. There was one question there um, for Sharon about the costs of some of those continuous... Um, monitoring systems if, if someone is going to consider purchasing it themselves? Yes, so Freestyle Libre people purchase online and um, yeah, I saw a comment there about disparity. Yeah, it's it's only for those that can afford them currently. I believe that they're becoming funded now in Australia and people are lobbying Pharmac for funding for it, for especially for children. Uh, and Alex, there's a question there from Matt, which I think probably what he what Matt's getting at is, and he might want to ask the question himself. But is is is, is largely around another area where I guess type one and type two can be confusing, um, where just very high blood sugar levels can in themselves be toxic to um, to, to beta cells, and, and therefore you you can start to get a 
um, you know, ketoacidosis and almost a type one picture. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, no, you're exactly right there, Matt. Um, and that, that in itself produces a interesting phenomenon um, called honeymoon syndrome. Um, so oftentimes when, when people with really high glucose levels start onto insulin um, and they give their pancreas a rest from the glucose toxicity that it's been suffering, that the pancreas will actually recover and um, start to function quite well again. And, and so most, or, or rather a lot of new type 1 diabetics will, will come off insulin or, or markedly reduce down their dosing requirements for a period of time in what's called the honeymoon phase um, before things then further go downhill and, and they have to restart or, or wind back up again to a full dose. So yeah, so, so it's exactly right. Um, and, and it's part of the pathophysiology, unfortunately. So Alex, I'm just clarifying, this is new to me. So the, the hyperglycemia is actually directly toxic to the pancreas and impairs its function. Correct. In a, yep. in a loop. Yep. So one of the other comments Matt has made with regard to that, he said with the first case, if if it was type one, would you not expect a higher ketone rise if pancreatic failure? So maybe he's asking why had this patient not tipped into DKA at this point, perhaps? Yep. Yeah, fair enough. I, I guess he, he's just managed to um, present at a point at which uh, his body was still producing just enough insulin as, as to not end up needing to become dependent on ketones. Yeah, that's really about all you can say there. Yeah, and I guess just enough to be suppressing ketone production is that that going into that cycle. Yeah. Um, if there's no more questions at this point, um, thank you, Sharon, for commenting on the the glucose monitoring. Um, I think we'll move on to our case fig next, but do keep popping the questions into the um, chat box. That's really um, great. So, I'd I just go. No, I think we, we're often faced with situations where with type 1 diabetics coming in who have an acute illness going on and, you know, the, the acute illness, whether it be pneumonia or pyelonephritis is the reason they're coming into hospital, but their diabetes has gone a little bit out of whack. And so that's a, a secondary thing that we need to um, need to manage. And I always feel like I'm guessing a bit and I, I'm never that comfortable um, managing that side of things. So I thought I'd just provide some uh, some scenarios to, to Alex and Sharon that we'll talk through just to talk about that, that management of the diabetes that's gone off the rails a bit because of the acute illness. So the first chap um, I, I would describe to you was a 58 year old man who's got long standing type two diabetes. He's 100 kilograms and he's on metformin only. So he's admitted with our to our hospital, our rural hospital with pneumonia, but he's noted to have high sugars running in the 20s. So then I'm like, oh, what am I going to do about his diabetes? I can sort his pneumonia out. What am I going to do about these sugars for the night? So I'll just sort of, um, I'll, I'll go between the two of you and you can disagree with each other if you wish. But you know, Sharon, in this situation with this chat, would you stop his metformin or, or carry on? In general, I tend to think that in the acutely unwell person, it's the safest thing to stop metformin. Mm -hmm. And I think was his, oh, we don't know what his HbA1c was. That would be interesting to know yep. about his control in general. So but he's acutely unwell. I would stop his metformin and give him some insulin. Yep. 
So what could go, what could be the downside of leaving someone on their, on their metformin when they were unwell? Um, generally, it's just another factor to worry about if they've got a deteriorating renal function. Yep. It's just one less thing to have to worry about. But we do have to be aware when that person's discharged that they restart it. So we have yep. to remember that. Yeah, yep. sure. So if, if you mentioned there that you, you think it would be appropriate to start some insulation, insulation, my goodness, I'm thinking about home renovations like dominating my mind. You're thinking about is insulin. Um, how might you um, start that, Sharon? Are we looking at a, a sliding scale? Would I be using ACT Rapid, Novo Rapid? And then I think, Alex, I'll, I'll hand over to you to sort of try and help me figure out what, what the heck to do with dosing. So in the past, we've used what's been called sliding scales, which Alex and I, we've just generally been discussing this a wee bit, they're a bit retrospective. And if we talk about correction, we're talking about prospective. So we're, we're looking to give people a correction that's going to improve the glycemia going ahead rather than retrospectively. And we use shorter acting insulin rather than the subcut act rapid, which was used historically, but we generally just use it in infusions now. So I know that was one of the things I really learned from you when I was working at Dunstan Hospital, when I was happily prescribing ACT Rapid, um, and you were like, no, please use Nova Rapid. So would, would you mind just describing a bit about the difference between ACT Rapid and Novo Rapid? And Alex, I'm not sure if you had a corresponding slide to go with Alex that. Alex has got a really good slide. So the profile of ACTRAPID is that it works for six or eight hours. So it's completely not physiological. Okay. Whereas Nova Rapid or Apedra or Humalog are quick acting and have an action of three hours. Mm -hmm. So we use those at meal times generally. Mm -hmm. And I'll let you explain your slide, Alex. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, the, the notable thing is that no insulin that we have available to us commercially is anywhere near as good as what our pancreases can produce endogenously. So looking at this graph here, you see that when you eat and you, you need some insulin effect in your body, your pancreas is able to produce it in a really good spike quickly um, and, and effectively. Whereas even our fastest um, rapid acting insulins take a good hour or so to reach their peak um, and and then they'll fall off over a period of time of, of sort of we, we consider most of the time four hours to to be sort of down to a relatively negligible effect again. Um, so you're sort of meaning like Nova Rapid? Correct. As yep. an example of that. Yeah. Yep. Um, you, you can see here this yellow line that I'm indicating now is what is is um, done by ACT Rapid. So it reaches a later and lower peak. So it's just not nearly as effective at managing the spike in glucose levels that we see from typical meals that we eat or for trying to get blood sugars back in range when they're already high. Um, the, one of the, some of the points here I just wanna emphasize to the group is that really what we need to try and do when we give people insulin is to match it to what their glucose profile is doing at any one time. Um, let me just bring you to the slide before showing you that when you eat, even in normal healthy metabolism, this solid red line here that I'm indicating shows you what your blood sugar does with typical Western food eaten at the three meal times in a day. Okay, so you, 
everybody gets a bit of a spike. Um, if you compare the graph on the right, the uh, the, the uh, scale has been changed such that people who are non-diabetic get a spike, but it stays within physiological mm -hmm. range. People with diabetes either sit constantly high and get an accentuated spike with that, or type oneers tend to get a profound spike. And this is what you're trying to manage by giving uh, exogenous insulin to, to offset um, that issue. Okay, so as you can see, the, the, the spikes need to be matched by insulin if at all possible. And um, none of our insulins really are able to perform to quite that extent, unfortunately. So we have to use things like um, making sure that the, the dose timing and the dose amount is, is as good as it can be. Um, there are a variety of means of, of achieving that. So um, it's important to make sure that doses are given actually pre-meal and the insulin can start working. Um, mm -hmm. To be considerate of the different sensitivities that individual pe people or patients might have. Um, so type 2 diabetes is, is the hallmark of it is insulin resistance. And so they're going to take a lot more insulin to achieve the same effect of their glucose levels. Um, and most people who are savvy with basal bolus regimes will, will slowly learn how to do flexible dosing according to all these factors that I've listed here, which impact on your degree of sensitivity to insulin. Um, and you need to carb count and work out using your sensitivity factor and your correction factors what your dose is going to be at any one time. So um, that's all getting a bit complicated. Um, and what I want to just highlight to us is back on the chart from Australia, for example, um, where it basically walks you through how to do it here by saying, if you were to take a starting dose of a, a person's weight in kilos divided by four, that would give you the basal amount, okay? What this tries to do is use a dose of 0 0.5 units per kilo as the total daily dose required of insulin to, to manage this person's hyperglycemia. Um, and they, they split it 50-50 into the basal amount and the mealtime dosing. And um, therefore, your, your weight divided by four is 0.25 or, or half of that 0.5 units per kilo per day amount. Um, and the mealtime dosing equally is split into the three meals, but as half of the 0.5 units per kilo. So it's a really nice chart and gives people nice, easy means of, of working out what they need to be doing. So Alex, for that, that chat, is that what you would suggest, that we would start him on a basal bolus kind of regime while he was in hospital? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. And I realise that's lots for everyone to take on. So Alex and I'll provide. Because can you obtain this just for anyone via the yep. internet, Alex? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I can send this around. Yep. So we can provide that afterwards. I can send that out to everyone. Because I certainly feel like I need a bit of guidance with these people when they they come in. Because I, I sometimes think the insulin prescribing is a bit haphazard because people just want to immediately get the sugar down. Um, yeah. And. So you're saying thinking about it through the, you know, the first 24, 48 hours of the admission is important. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, the beauty of this particular methodology is that it is proactive to what people's needs are. So you essentially 
doing a weight-based calculation to get a starting point. And then mm. on a day or 24 hour basis, you recalculate according to what the total daily dose is, adjust the 50-50 split between basal and mealtime dosing and put in a supplementary or correction amount as, as indicated down here by what the pre-meal time capillary glucose is, uh, what you want your target to be and how much you need to bring it down back into that range again. And that gets added on to the mealtime rapid acting dose with rapid acting insulin. So um, I just caution everyone against using the term a sliding scale because it mm -hmm. really, really that should be reserved for insulin infusions only, um, whereby you're essentially constantly monitoring the capillary glucose levels and you've got a insulin infusion that you're just adjusting the rate up and down according to what the overall requirements are and you're not trying to do one insulin sort of added on to another and and, and, and different peaks with it etc. Sharon is there anything you'd like to add to, to Alex's explanation there? Yep um, just just um when Alex was saying about food, insulin and correction, they're, they're added together and given at that time. So hopefully, you know, we're not doing ad lib doses of insulin mm -hmm. throughout the day. It's preprandial plus correction. Yeah. And yep. when Alex just mentioned, when you mentioned about the insulin infusion, they can go tricky when people are eating. Mm -hmm. So people should have their lantus insulin while on, on an insulin infusion. Plus, when they're eating, they can have some prandial insulin as well, mm -hmm. because otherwise, the after a person's eaten, the blood sugars go up and the whole infusion is dialed up, and it can yep. get quite. Is that what you would suggest, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, you know, just reviewing our local protocol, it cautions against having people have any kind of uh, food intake whilst they're on an insulin infusion. Um, and so if you're anticipating that they might start eating, then you really need to stop the infusion at a set time. It's usually one hour before um, and, and give a meal time dose of subcutaneous insulin and see how they get on at that point in time. Yep. So obviously, you know, in the, in, if we had an ideal um, protocol to follow, like this Australian one, there'll be guidance around when to test sugars. But if we're providing that in our um, admission plan, Sharon, what, what should we guidance should we be giving the nurses about when to actually test these patients' um, sugars? Definitely pre-meal, of course, to guide the dosing. And two to three hours after can give us a good idea of whether that amount of insulin was correct. Yep. At that at that meal time, sure. plus I always like a pre-bed test. Yep. Have we got a safe level going to bed? And if a person's unwell and in hospital, a two a.m. test gives us some really good information as well. Yeah. So that two o'clock one, that might be the time that they might dip quite low. That you, so you're trying to capture that. That's right. That low. Yeah. yeah. And the action that we should take, obviously, we treat that immediate low as as required. But how might we change our overall insulin regime if people are getting those two o'clock? lows Sharon if they had a good going to bed level which was at least three hours after the prandial evening insulin mm -hmm. then they they are likely to be on too much long acting lantus right. lantus insulin so that should that lantus dose should be reviewed mm -hmm. sure okay and um and how long before a meal 
you know, does it matter if they're, if they're checking five minutes before they meal and they give their prepandial insulin then or should they be really checking, you know, half an hour, an hour before a meal? Um, pretty much just pre-meal. For a lot yep. of type 1 folk now, we're suggesting they have their short-acting insulin 15 minutes before eating and then that short-acting insulin is working a bit better before yep. that blood sugar is starting to rise. But, you know, I... I've seen accidents happen when people get distracted. They have their insulin, gets distracted, and they don't eat. So, with the older folk, I like them. I like to say, "Have your food ready. You have yep. to test your blood sugar. Yep. Have your insulin. Eat your meal." Yeah, and there could be a delay, I guess, in the in the hospital delivery of meals yeah, too. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Um, Gary, I might just come back to you. I think there's um, I see a few questions building up there. Yeah, thanks, Matilda. I mean, there's a couple of sort of quite relevant questions on the on the topics that you're talking about. Um, what One is, and I can see the logic of this, given the fact we don't like to carry unnecessary drugs in, in small places, is, is if, uh, can we get away with using Nova Rapid rather than Act Rapid for our insulin infusion? If if holding Act Rapid really is now the only the only reason to keep Act Rapid hanging around? Um, or is, is it just sort of habit that we we keep doing that? Um, and and one, one other question too, which is uh, probably fairly relevant to, to both of you, is, is around that initial calculation of your, your basal insulin about whether or not that should be done on um, ideal body weight or on actual body weight. Can I just answer about the Actrapid insulin? My understanding is Actrapid is the cheapest insulin that there is and all IV insulin just works the same. Is that your understanding, Alex? Yep, absolutely. And, um, you know, if, if people just bear in mind that um, anyone on an insulin pump uses a rapid acting, so it's either Nova Rabbit or, or Humalog in, in a pump. Um, and and the, the beauty of using the most rapid acting that you can get is that any change you make to your pump infusion rate um, has, a, has a rapid change in terms of its uh, level in, in your bloodstream or in your body. So, yeah, it, it's neither here nor there, really, if you're giving it intravenously. Um, yeah, I, I don't see why they couldn't be exchanged. It's just not conventional, that's all. Um, as far as dosing goes, uh, to answer that second question there, Gary, um, yeah, that that actual weight would be better, but not, not always, um, or, or yeah, is, is probably better in the sense that those with uh, much higher than ideal body weights are, are going to be considerably insulin resistant and so predictably would need higher doses um, anyway. Um, I, I think we, we, we talked earlier when, when I was showing the um, chart that, that um, a figure of 0.5 units per kilo was a good starting point for someone who's got average insulin sensitivity who's unwell being hospitalized is going to be monitored intensively um, looking at some of the resources for people you know as outpatients being started um, on insulin often often we'd start you know someone on a on a lesser dose something like 0.2 or 0.3 units per kilo um, and, and just gradually build it up over a extended period of time say a few weeks um, according to what their needs are um, so it's it's not an exact science, this, and um, I, I guess the point is to to basically start with something that is towards the conservative end and 
basically keep a close eye on things and adjust up as needed um, is probably the best way of explaining it to you. Your thoughts there, Sharon? Yep, I agree wholeheartedly. There's another question for both of you is probably that feeds into that, and that's it's around the half-life of Landis and, and, and how long it takes to reach a steady state and whether we should be chasing um, adjustments every day or whether or not we should be leaving a bit longer than that. Definitely leaving a bit longer than that. It's, it's really slow acting, and we generally say dose changes only every three or four days. Right. And the other thing on Lantus is that we say it's 24 hours action, but for most people, it probably doesn't quite last 24 hours. So I prefer Lantus to be given at night. You get good coverage overnight, and then generally there's short-acting insulin through the day to help cover off when the Lantus is just tailoring out a wee bit. Well, thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, I just was going to keep that scenario, same scenario in mind, but let's think about this chap that he comes into hospital, pneumonia again, but he's already on insulin. So he's he's on, on Lantus and Novo Rapid with, uh, with meals, so a basal bolus regime. Um, so can we just, you know, he's got high sugars, he's, he's a bit sick with his pneumonia, can we just carry on with his usual regime? Um, and if we do carry on with this usual regime, how are we best to adjust it to match these slightly higher sugars? So we would get this man using his correction factor, which um, Alex put on a slide earlier, we work out 100 divided by the total daily dose. So if this chat was on something like 50 units, he's got a correction factor of one unit of insulin will drop his blood sugars two millimoles. Mm -hmm. That's just a, a very average example. So he will, if he's running blood sugars above where he wants them, he'll add on that correction insulin with his prandial insulin. Yep. And we can give him a written scale to help with that. You know, if his blood sugar's that, then he'll have this much. Yep. So, so for, I mean, everyone's individual, but say for this chat, what kind of sugars would you suggest he should be aiming for, you know, during his admission with an acute illness what what kind of range would you be happy with i think we're generally going for if, he, if he's an inpatient we're going for blood sugars definitely under 10 okay so say he, he he is eating and drinking he sits down he does his sugar before the the meal it's um it's 20 then he's trying to bring his blood glucose down by 10 so he uses his correction factor to work fraction to work out how many units of a short his short acting insulin is that correct Sharon that's that's correct so he'll have his food insulin plus a correction of an extra five units okay and what would I do with his Lantus dose for that first day in hospital mm, it's a tricky one um if it's yeah it, it could be increased it could be increased a little bit I think couldn't it Alex yep yep it you probably best to leave it for the first day and try and yep. work out what your total daily dose has need has been um, yep. 24 hours later and, and then you know look to try and split the proportions back up again of what that total daily dose is and and um, and, and work out how much additional lantus that therefore means is needed and what the um, higher amounts of, of prandial insulin uh, that, that you need to be using and, and then still if needed add on a correction factor and, until essentially you have mealtime doses that are that are managing the, the need at that time. 
Yep. So would he use the correction factor, or the, the, the dose that he calculates using the correction factor, fraction, would he add that onto his usual preprandial dosing, or would that replace his usual preprandial dosing? Add it on. Add it on. Okay. What happens, um, Sharon, what advice would you give to me if I called you and said this man was coming in, he had pneumonia, but he also had an acute kidney injury and his, his creatinine was double its usual amount. Would that influence how I might uh, prescribe his insulin? Yes, I'm quite a bit more careful, conservative mm -hmm. with insulin with people with deteriorating renal function. Yep. Just because... Um, insulin's not supposed to be renally excreted, but we do know that it accumulates and people are more at risk of hypoglycemia. Okay, sure. And would you agree with that, Alex? You'd, you'd change it slightly? Yeah, look, it all, all depends on the overall um, context and situation and, and the sort of degree of physiological stress that we're seeing, because um, that, that's probably going to be the main driver as to how much need for insulin there is at any one time. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that in the same way that many other drugs we give, you know, can be problematic in acute kidney injury. Um, you know, we just need to be mindful of that with, with insulins too. Um, yep. Yeah. Sure. So if I'm getting this right, the chap who, um, who was not on insulin to begin with, we're going to start him on a, a basal bolus regime and we're going to use some kind of protocol to guide us in our diagnosing and that's going to be weight based and then we're going to look at him over 24 48 hours and adjust that but if we're dealing with the chap who's already on insulin we're going to carry on with his basal bolus and we can use a correction factor to adjust his insulin pre-meal to try and level things out would that be a fair summary yes yeah yep. okay so what what happens if this man was not quite well enough to come into hospital um, and we said, look, I think we can put you on oral antibiotics and, and send you home, but your sugars definitely are running a bit bit high. And he says, what, what on earth am I going to do about my, my diabetes when I'm at, at home? What we don't know about this person is what is his HbA1c? I'm going to take he, he's 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 middle of the road. You know, he's his HbA1c is 60, 60 to 70. So he, I would actually suggest that a few days on antibiotics and he's going to be a lot better and his blood sugars are going to settle likely. Yep. So it depends how acute his blood sugars are yep. and is that a problem? Are we going to start some medication to get him over that or are we yep. going to wait a couple of days for it to settle? Yeah, so you kind of got to think about, is it clinically significant? Is it all right for him just to go a few days with his sugars up a little bit? rather yeah. than fiddling around with his insulin. Yeah. 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 And how high are they? Yeah. Yeah. Would you would you agree with that, Alex? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair comment. Um and I, I think you just need to bring into context the, you know, sort of supports that this person has and ability to look after themselves and, you know, perhaps whether or not they can get some monitoring done in the interim um between now and their and their next healthcare contact as well to just see where things are at. Yep. Gary, are there any questions related to that, that sort of that case drawn to an end? Um, any, any questions that have cropped up? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple there. There was one question around, particularly still a few patients around who are uh, 
not on basal bolus regimes, but are on you know, mixed insulin regimes, like twice daily sort of insulin. And, and, and you've given a really nice sort of logical approach to the person who's on the, um, on the basal bolus regime. But have you got any advice for the, for the patient who's perhaps on that simpler BD mixed insulin regime? Or would, would you change them onto a basal bolus temporarily? Personally, I try and keep things really simple try just not to make it over over complicate things so we can quite safely do a tds mixed insulin so we could add in some midday insulin there and or um, increase the bd dose that the person's on temporarily to get them over this bump and infrequently perhaps i would add in a short acting insulin but then you've got to be confident that that person's not going to mix up their insulins it's just about keeping it simple and what can that person manage well at home can i just interrupt and clarify this is um i this is about my terrible area of weakness is all these insulin business so when you say mixed insulin can you just clarify exactly what the mixture is what types and duration of action are in the mixed so we'd often use Novomix 30 which is 30% short-acting, 70% longer-acting. It's not 24-hour, but the 12-hour, like, um, protophane type. That's your Novomix. Or your um, Humalog Mix 25, which is 25% Humalog, short-acting, 75, 75% <laughs> of the Humalin and longer-acting. Yep. So that you see that will cover about eight hours so that's why it's a BD insulin and it's given with breakfast and with dinner yep but if we want to bump up the dose we could add in a lunchtime dose just to bump it up sure and and that you're starting your this is sort of going sideways but you're starting your diabetics on those mixed insulins if they're starting to get blips around meal times like their sugars are starting to blip up around around meal yep. times quite significantly yeah, so we use the, the blood glucose profile to choose which insulin. Mm -hmm. If they've got consistent high blood sugars, just a long-acting like Lantus will probably be satisfactory. If they're having a postprandial rise, we'd consider adding in a short-acting acting insulin. Mm -hmm. But then that becomes quite... Um, people have to do a lot of monitoring, et cetera, and injecting. A BD mix is a lot simpler for people. Yep. You get less optimal blood sugars, but it's much simpler and often much more tolerable. Gary, any further things there? There's one. There's one other question which comes back to this issue of, of metformin, and and it, uh, I guess comes back to that threshold that you have. Sort of how sick does a patient have to be before you stop their metformin? Which I actually get. I get a feeling has actually changed over the years. We're a, a little bit braver about keeping it going than what we used to be in the past. But if, if you get someone who, who comes in with an intercurrent illness and their blood sugars aren't, aren't high, but they are on metformin, if, is, do you have a sort of rough threshold at which point you would actually temporarily stop that, that metformin and, and replace it with, with some insulin, even though their sugars aren't high at that time? It's probably not an easy question, that one. No, it's, it's a good question, Gary, because it's, it's a real-life scenario. Um, I, I think... Uh, if you are consistently seeing blood sugars in the mid-teens or higher, then, then you would probably need to look at getting on and giving some, some insulin to get that under control. Um, 
depending on what the trajectory of this person's illness was appearing to be as well. Um, you know, if it, if it looked like they were going to be a whole lot better in 24 hours time um, with much less physiologic stress driving their sugars to be high um, and it was only sitting at sort of 10 to 12, you, you might just hang in there for, for that period of time. It's, yeah, I think you've got to put it in the, in the wider context of the situation, really. Sharon? Well, thanks, I Alex. I Sorry, Sharon. Yep. No, I agree. Cool. <laughs> So I think we'll move away just from that sort of acute admission time um, and kind of to the diabetic who you got on the ward. And and often I'm, um, you know, I'm not the person necessarily who's going to be starting somebody on insulin for the long term. But I think it's important for hospital doctors to, you know, have an ability to sort of recognise the patient that should be started on insulin. You know, they've been on oral agents, but it's time to go into insulin. I just wondered, Sharon, perhaps if you could comment on like, when is it time for someone to for a type 2 diabetic to, to be going on into insulin and what, what's the clues for us as the hospital doctor about that um, time to, the time to make that transition? I would say um, not reaching target HbA1c and they've been on maximum orals for a period of time. And so that would lead us to the question, what is the target HbA1c, which for a young person might be 50 millimoles per mole. And for an older person we might shift that to 64 so we have more relaxed targets as we get older and for an elderly frail person we may want it quite a bit weaker than 64 even because we have a very low tolerance for hypoglycemia in the elderly so generally not be meeting target maximum orals we'd be considering starting insulin and I think one of the things that you commented to me the other day that that maximum orals will differ between people because of what they'll tolerate as well that's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and what sort of what sort of is the most common reason that you see people not able to push up to the maximum doses of of oral agents? Oh, the very most common thing is intolerance to metformin. Yeah. yeah. So that causes a lot of gut upset, and often people don't talk about it. But yeah. we should always be asking, "How's your tummy?" If they're on yeah. metformin, because yeah. it causes a lot of grief. Yeah. yeah. And Alex is probably going to talk about the newer medications. Yeah. You know, in, in the up till now, we've mainly used softener ureas and metformin, but mm -hmm. we're not using softener ureas much anymore at yeah. all. Yeah. And when you make that decision to go on to insulin, um, and someone's already on metformin, do you stop the metformin, or you, you tend to keep going with it? Definitely keep going with it. I yep. explain to people that it gets the insulin working better. Okay. So they're likely to need a lot more insulin if we stop the metformin. Yep. Yep. Keep the metformin going. Add on, add on some some insulin, and we just start low and titrated up. Sure. And what's your usual sort of what what do you normally start with agent wise for the for the type two diabetic going onto insulin? Um. As people see on TV, the one everybody knows about is Lantus, but we want a blood glucose profile first. Yep. So if their blood sugars are consistently elevated through the day, then Lantus will be suitable. Yep. But if they're having a significant postprandial rise, it may be that some short-acting insulin yep. might work better. So yep. it's really studying those blood sugars and seeing what is going to suit best. But often, you know, people are very anxious about starting insulin. Yep. Lentus is the simplest one to start. It's yep. once a day at bedtime, not with food and low risk of hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's a kind, gentle way just to start just, you know, one month of Lentus to get them going. Yep. I and I think and I think that um, 
that graph that Alex uh, showed us earlier really illustrates that point with the type 2 diabetic that I think I, I didn't quite understand this till now that their sugars are just running chronically kind of high as opposed to the type 1 diabetic who is shooting up and down and you're having to counter that with with short acting insulin frequently throughout the throughout the day. That's um, right. The risk is with if people just use lentis and they're having a considerable mm. postprandial rise, the risk can be of increasing the lentis to the extent where they'll sooner or later start having hypos at night. Mm -hmm. So that's when we have to look at a different process. Yeah, so you can actually end up not really treating the, the issue that you're trying to and then creating harm. That's right. At my mm -hmm. time. Um, I am conscious of the time. So please, I, I sort of think we've, we've still got a wee bit of ground to cover and I'm still learning. So I'm going to carry on. But please feel free to, to go if you need to. Um, I just I just see that there are questions coming through. And I, um, Gary, anything relevant to what we were just um, exploring there with Sharon? I think just moving on to that discussion about the new agents might cover some of some of those things. Yep, sure. So maybe, um, Alex, if we just if we could just really brief, briefly recap the agents that we use already, uh -huh. like one sentence each maybe, and then um, move on to comment about some of those newer agents. So metformin is still the um, sort of the mainstay of managing insulin resistance, or, or which is the, the, the main pathophysiology in type 2 diabetes. And it, this diagram seeks to try and just explain some of the effects that that uh, metformin has um, on the body. Um, it reduces the amount of, of um, glucose that's absorbed from the gut. Um, uh, it helps the body to utilize it more effectively. Um, and it increases it, it, by, by way of increasing the sensitivity um, to, to insulin uh, in, in the peripheral cells of the body. Um, it also helps to shut down part of the pathophysiology of, of gluconeogenesis and lipogenesis um, and, um, and therefore help with the sort of the underlying reason why sugars are getting out of control. Um, what I'll move to next is, is just that metformin really needs to, to um, be kept in um, very much uh, in conjunction with non-pharmacological interventions. And these are still really the foundation of what we need to be doing to help sort of break that pathophysiology if we can by, by helping people to eat, you know, more sensible food that produces less glycemia um, and also to exercise more which helps with that um, insulin sensitivity issue as well. Um, it's perhaps something that I, I've seen not be done all that well in, hosp in acute hospital settings often um, but you know we, we always need to be mindful of the opportunities that we have to just give some brief advice even about people um, managing their issue by by lifestyle interventions um, and, and you know getting them off to have some CBD risk assessment done or, or a diabetic annual review you know a completely free assessment that that patient can have to try and get things back on on track again. I'll just uh, touch now is, is now a good time to talk about some of the newer drugs Matilda? Perfect. Yeah yeah so the in Cretan pathways um, 
is represented by this diagram here. Um, so the glucagon-like peptide 1 agonists um, essentially are a glucagon-like peptide 1 is a um, hormone which our bodies produce um, and it helps to um, uh, increase the production of insulin from our beta cells when there is glucose there that needs the attention of, of the insulin. Um, so it, it's really good because it, it works when it needs to, but it doesn't produce um, sort of the adverse effects of just simply giving more and more insulin to somebody, um, such as hypoglycemia, for example, um, to nearly the same extent. So it, um, it also helps with slowing gastric emptying, and one of the problems it has that, that they have a, um, that nausea can be a common issue, um, but it does help achieve weight loss. And in New Zealand, currently, um, liraglutide, one of our GLP-1 agonists, is licensed only for weight loss. Um, we've got exanatide, which is uh, licensed for type 2 diabetes, um, but is not yet funded. Um, they probably reduce CVD events um, it hasn't yet been portrayed in the data in the literature yet, but I, I guess these are going to be coming on scene soon, no doubt. And um, they're injection only, which is one other downside to them, but they're a much better means of trying to get good control in the in the longer run. Uh, the DPP4 enzyme is basically just an inactivator of the GLP1. So these drugs, these inhibitors, seek to try and um, stop the GLP-1 being degraded. Um, and so we do have one of these drugs currently available and subsidized um, called Vildagliptin. Um, we just have to be careful about liver uh, impairment with, with the Glyptin class. Um, uh, they have a sort of similar effect to what the GLP-1 agonists do, uh, just, just not quite as potent. Um, they don't really seem to produce any impact on CVD outcomes, um, so not quite as as good. Uh, they also maybe have some concerns around an increased potential for causing pancreat for, for pancreatitis to to occur, but again, it's it's early days. Um, we'll just can I just, go can I just interrupt you, there, Alex? Yeah. So the one that's available in New Zealand is do we say Vildagliptin? Correct. Yeah. Also known as Galvis. Galvis. I was just wondering if Sharon wanted to comment if, if many of her patients were on that and how who can access that drug. Yeah, it's funded and it's mm -hmm. it is it is useful. And the combination is Galvamet as well. So that's um, metformin one gram plus filtergliptin fifty milligrams. So right. that's instead of three tablets, that's one one. So that works really well for people. And that's not special authority, that's people can just be on that. Yeah, many side effects, or is it reasonably well tolerated? Filtergliptin's well tolerated. It's mm -hmm. still just the metformin side effect. Yep. Any? Do you have you clinically, like anecdotally, um, much weight loss that you're seeing with the addition of that agent? Um, I'm actually seeing some quite good results with it. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Sharon. Yeah, so just moving on, uh, another class, we're just about done. Um, so the SGLT2 inhibitors are probably the, the big new um, category that's coming onto the scene now. So we've got DAPA, Glyflozin registered in New Zealand, um, not yet funded. 
It's making some quite big waves in the literature worldwide um, insofar as there's clear benefits to CVD outcomes and, um, and chronic kidney disease, especially if there's established proteinuria, um, which of course is you know, the hallmark of diabetic nephropathy. So um, they, these have multi-system potential benefits for people um, and, it, and it also benefits and is seen now as an add-on therapy for heart failure um, independent of, of diabetes as well. It's an interesting category of medication that it works to basically help the kidneys to excrete excess glucose from the body mm. um, and so with that comes a, a problem in terms of a higher potential to have um, uh, genitourinary thrush and, and an increased incidence of urinary tract infections. And um, the other thing I, I think all of us need to be just um, aware of with these these new meds coming in, and particularly this category, the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, they, they they can produce this obscure condition called euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, where um, people with normal blood glucose levels um, in, the, in the presence of becoming a bit dehydrated with that with that osmotic diuresis issue going on um, can develop a DKA and become really critically ill as a result. So um, it's something that we're all just going to need to be mindful of when we start seeing people on these, on these drugs and with acute illnesses. Um, Alex, did you say that class they're called flozins? Yeah, well, that, that's yeah. the, um, it's the, end part of all of the, the different drugs of that category here. Yeah. So, what, so, so Sue had written a question, will flozins change our insulin prescribing? Yeah, um, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've put up just now on the slide the, you know, the remaining groups of anti-diabetic agents being sulfonylureas, glitazones, acalos, etc. cetera. Um, and probably looking, looking at overseas literature, the sulfonylureas are probably going to, end up being sort of phased out um, in time because they're just not as good and more prone to problems than some of these newer agents which which are more directly acting on the pathophysiology as well so um, I expect that we'll see people taking multiple combinations of metformin, GLP-1 agonist, SGLT2 inhibitor all at once and perhaps avoiding the need for supplementary insulin um, with that. Um, they all that they can be used um, uh, with insulin to, to some extent, um, but I, I guess the real life experience with them is still limited at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's why we were conscious to bring them up tonight. We were, we were aware that it's a lot of information to take on board, but we felt like you know we we need to be introduced to these these ideas and these um, drugs, even though we may not necessarily be starting them um, that the initial prescribers, but we will be soon seeing patients who, who are on them. Yep. Um, Alex, am I, is it anything further that you want to say with regard that? And I'll, I'll check in. Gary, any other questions that have popped up? Um, there's just, just one, which is going backwards a little bit, but it is, uh, it is a question I've actually thought that Sharon had answered earlier on about the timing of day for uh, for Lantus, in which you suggest that it's better to give in the evening because of the because not quite full twenty four hour cover from it, Sharon. But what what about in that situation where you are just giving someone uh, Lantus and, and nothing else? Lantus Lantus can be any time really, and so it's the most suitable time for the person. I can 
and the, the time when they're least likely to forget it. So <laughs> often I think for older people, perhaps morning might be better. So just the safest time for the person, it's okay. So Sharon, I think I'll give you the, the final word because I think the one thing we haven't touched on, um, we've sort of, it has been quite medication oriented and Alex has brought up the, the aspects of diabetes management that are so important but often overlooked um, with regard to exercise and diet. But I think something you mentioned to us was sort of your, your relationship with your patients and, and the approach that you take is so crucial as well. I just wondered if you wanted to, to comment on that. As, as Alex mentioned, you know, um, diabetes is just relentless for people. It's not like a lot of conditions where people will get better. You know, it's hard work for them. And often they come to clinic and, and will say, oh, this is bad. You know, if the HbA1c is too high, we just need to walk beside them mm -hmm. and, when, and know what struggles they've got going on in their lives and yep. just support them the best we can, you know. And, yeah. We all have bad days. <laughs> well said. Alex, any other final comments? No, no, I think I think we've um yeah, it's, it's good good to raise that again um in, in the discussion then Matilda of the you know non pharmacological management of things and, and uh you know, I, I guess especially up where we are, central North Island, um large um Maori population and um just it's important to maintain a focus on trying to achieve equity as well would be the other mm. you know really important thing to just keep in mind with how we're managing these situations and, and um, uh, there's there's certain Maori health um, aspects that you know uh, are, are quite critical to understand in the in diabetes management as far as you know longer term outlooks for people and and, um, and what they want from their management and so I think at the end of the day like really good consulting skills of, of trying to sound people out for what they want to achieve yeah. with their diabetes management is, is really important and and uh, you know I think um, yeah we, we hopefully do that reasonably well in the rural hospitals normally. Thanks Alex. Um, so just final reminder to fill out the, the survey, the links um, there in the chat box and that will um, provide your medical council number as well. So that brings our webinar to an end. So thank you so much to Sharon and Alex. Um, I've learned so much just in the, even in the preparation for this, um, for this webinar, identified quite a few gaps in my knowledge, learned even more tonight and I really appreciate your the time and energy that you've both put into this and um, Sharon, really awesome to have your nursing expertise. It's really um, sort of grounding and quite real and I think you have to recognise that you do most of the work out there with the diabetics so we've got lots to learn from you. Um, thanks to Gary and Rory for your help and thank you to you all attending and, and lots of questions tonight. Um, I hope we got to all your questions. Feel free to send me any that, that didn't get answered and I can pass them on to Sharon and Alex. Um, and just remember that these are recorded and we'll be we'll put it up on Rory's blog shortly on, on Leaning on Fence Posts. So, ka kite anō.